This is Earthbound and Incoming, the podcast. As a writer, I love to share my stories and novels. And why not start with the story of my life, growing up in an old farmhouse with a straw roof, one sink, one tap, an indoor outhouse and sharing it with 11 other siblings and our parents. Eventually, it also becomes our story and the turbulent times we live in. Expect plenty of humor with a great deal of levity and the occasional barb thrown in for good measure. Welcome to my world, Earthbound and Incoming, Episode 1. Matthew Broderick Fred Roger. I can't think of a better introduction. My house is a few doors down from, from an elementary school, and it's not the first time that I've watched that little bugger scamper down the sidewalk with his mother in tow, desperately trying to catch up. It must be a game to him. He runs away and she alternately pleads, implores, cajoles, and she finally loses it and starts to holler and bellow louder and louder, Matthew Broderick Fred Roger, stop at the corner. I am warning you, Matthew Broderick Fred Roger, you're in big trouble now. There are other kids and mothers that fall into the same mold and they seem to be multiplying at an alarming rate. But this particular little guy struck a chord, a likable one. Perhaps it was the litany of names, so unexpected and perhaps unlikely. The sequence alone, Matthew, Broderick, Fred, Roger. The Fred seemed like a dissonant chord, a fracture in a melody, someone in the orchestra dropping a note, an awkward pause. His name somehow stuck, and of course the lunacy of referring to a child or an adult by all their given names. Women especially like to resort to this failing weapon when faced with a situation of which all control has been lost. And this is a last ditch effort to save face. A desperate attempt to retake control and reassert some kind of authority. When your wife uses all of your given names, and in my case my Christian names, I know that the shit has hit the fan. For some strange reason this particular Matthew has stolen my heart. On a nice day, I will sit on the front porch hoping that he and his mom will put in an appearance and Matthew will perform as expected. And to my great delight, he rarely disappoints. A kid like Matthew doesn't need an iPad or any other electronic device, even a TV. Why bother when you can partake in live theater and you and your mom are the lead actors? It is in full color and you can observe mom's face change from the usual pale and fair skin to various shades of angry red. He is such a master. Exasperated, she will catch up with him, and within seconds he starts up again, darts away as fast as his little legs will allow, and the game is once more afoot. And he is such a little shit. At some point the yelling, cajoling, bellowing and pleading will change to tears, and little Matthew will stop, put his arms around his mummy and say, I love you, mommy. Immediately his mommy nearly squeezes him to death as she, in full hiccup mode, pronounces her undying love for him as well. At this point Matthew looks into the camera and winks. Matthew won, mom zero. Matthew knows he's way up on the score, although he doesn't know by how much. He's only three years old and cannot count. But he has a very good idea what a lot means. It's huge. Like a jar full of gumballs. 
You don't know how many there are, but it would almost take you forever to eat them all. When you're only three, everything around you is huge, and life is a great adventure. You try to find your way around, and testing mom's patience is but one piece of the puzzle. Mom is also a handy victim. I had a marvelous child psychology professor in teacher's college, and he had a neat way of explaining how a child's mind works. Every parent starts and ends the day with a full plate. The chores and tasks that require a parent's attention are many. You're like a juggler with way too many balls in the air. Kids, on the other hand, aren't bothered by such things as jobs, responsibilities, bills, etc. They have all the time in the world to plan and scheme, and the obvious object is always right in front of them, their parents. All the trouble you're planning as a child is fun, and emotional consequences don't enter the picture until children become adults. Guilt is a phenomenon of age. Parents aging prematurely is probably a result of raising way too many Matthew Broderick Fred Rogers. My Matthew is an ordinary kid, average built, a bit impish, full of peasant vinegar, and if he continues on this path and ever settles down as an adult with a girl consenting to be his wife, I pity the poor soul. We have formed a kind of bond, unspoken, unverified and silent, and yet there is a connection. During one of his escapades, Mom was on the verge of bursting out into tears, he happened to look in my direction and we made eye contact. Our connection. I raised up a conspiratorial thumb. There was a furtive look, a sideways glance to calculate the distance between Mom and child, and then he showed me that impish grin that always accompanies his spurts as he takes off with Mom in hot pursuit and the grin widened and out of sight of mom, he too gave me the thumbs up. He was a year older now, a bit wiser, and almost ready to attend the same elementary school as his older sister. I'm amazed how many parents, and especially mothers, have adopted this method of child control. Are they even aware how loud they are? Has it become an integrated, intrinsic aspect of child rearing? If you're not allowed to walk anymore, yell instead. My parents were different. Upon completing basic elementary schooling, they were drafted into the workforce, age 12. Can you imagine? Both of them had to help out in providing for their families and were expected to pitch in. They had little or no choice in the matter. Breadwinners from an early age on. Child labor laws were still in its infancy and lacked teeth. Just like all current global agreements on poverty, climate change and fairness. What they lacked in education, they made up for in common sense. Call it instinctive instincts, perhaps. You learn fast when you have little to fall back on. My father didn't warn or caution. If you failed to pay heed to his body language, you never saw the hand coming that cuffed you around the ear or found your buttock with a resounding whack. Dad was a man of few words, more a man of action. Not exactly a James Bond type but he was not to be trifled with. For starters, my dad was six foot four, weighed nearly 250 pounds, and didn't have an ounce of fat on him. His feet were huge, a size 19 or 20, and the local greengrocer, haberdasher, hardware store owner, in a small village like ours, a buddy entrepreneur who wanted to survive in business, had to be a jack of all trades, and he would specifically order 
two pairs of rubber boots each year coming all the way from Norway. Apparently there are a lot of people with big feet in Norway. And my dad and Kurt Tesler, our neighbor and the father of my friend Theo, happened to share the same size. My dad also wore wooden shoes. They were like boats. Had I been daring enough as a youngster, I might have attempted to cross the ditch across the road from our house in those big wooden shoes. Big enough it seemed to act as canoes for a little person like myself. My mother didn't need physical force to get her undivided attention. She had the eye. She had the voice. She only needed to look at you with those blue eyes of hers that could express, express such deep sorrow and disappointment if you failed to pay attention to her request or admonition. It was her silence followed by a sorrowful look that could shrink you in an instant to minimalist size. You wanted to shrivel up and vanish, and vanish into a crack, any crack. I don't think she even stood five feet tall and to see mom and dad side by side, even in the odd dance, was a comical sight. A giant cavorting with a midget. Between the two of them, they produced a litter of 12 and I was number 11. There's no doubt that we were the products of sexual intimacy but deep down in my heart, I am convinced that most of the sexual positions must have been conservative and missionary in nature. I couldn't picture them ever having sex standing up. I mean, most of us would have ended up as blowjobs. And I would never have met Matthew, brother, Fred, Roger. As I'm writing all this down, I've often wondered where all these names came from. Grandparents? Uncles? Mine are all related to saints. Willie brothers, Maria, I think mom was secretly hoping for a girl and threw that one in for good measure, perhaps anticipating that in the decades to come, conversion might be a possibility, although in all fairness, I would have made a real ugly girl. I know that gender identity is a real struggle for some, and I do hope that a yelling and screaming mother doesn't lie at the root of all that confusion. Augustinus was the last name given to me. Willie Brothers Maria Augustinus, a whole mouthful. In short form, I was Will. Three little letters, concurrent with my simple three-letter last name, Bess. When you have 12 kids, it makes sense to either use a short form. I mean, they could have used numbers and simply called me 11, rather than give us illustrious names referring to important people, heads of state, or those made famous in novels, plays, and movies. Alexander, Winston, Mordecai. Just thinking of a few that come to mind. Only a few of us got names that held more than three letters. My two oldest brothers only got two letters. They were the first. So why did they start out so stingy? My brother, Gerard, got the most letters. He was late arriving, jaundiced, and according to my mother, looked like a shriveled up little old man. In their own words, I have never seen such an ugly baby. It was coming for neighboring ladies to visit. A loose translation would best describe it as a visit to a newborn baby. According to my mom, one of the neighbors looked in the crib, eyed the newborn, hesitated, and then exclaimed, What a beautiful baby boy! To which my mom replied, Liar! He is the most ugly thing I've ever seen! Luckily, my older brother outgrew his ugly little man appearance. Ended up better looking than most of us, and with a better head of air. Goes to show you, miracles do happen. 
Early days. When you delve into your own past, it is easy to be led astray by nostalgia and sentiment. I've never been a fan of memoirs, especially if they are written by the subject himself or if written by a ghostwriter based on conversations and exchanges with the subject. I often wonder how truthful the recollections are. There is such a thing as selective memory and attempts at rewriting personal history to shave off some of the more embarrassing moments and flaps, whittle away bits of shame that would otherwise portray us in a less favorable light. We're not exactly known for openly highlighting sins, errors, omissions, and sheer stupidity. Political memoirs should be thrown out on that basis alone. When you look into the early days of your life, you have to admit that recollections are spotty at best, and for a good reason. All of us are human and the brain is not a computer with a fast database. Instant recall is not part of the equation. We remember things that stand out, some because they were so funny and memorable that you simply can't forget. Trauma and loss are also significant triggers, but in my case my early years were uneventful. I have no recollection whatsoever of my first three years. Although my youngest sister, Ellie, steadfastly maintained as he remembers going down the bird canal that it was a traumatic experience. Hers was a poker face that fleeced me time and time again. Perhaps I was an easy target. Yes, I was. I've always been an introvert, an avid reader, and often preoccupied with quiet contemplation while stuck with my nose in a book. Two of her pranks I will never forget unless struck down by premature dementia. As a mature student, I studied a lot of languages and reading books by various authors in the original language was part of the curriculum. One day, out of the blue, she asked me while I'm fully engrossed in whatever I was reading at the time, Will, can I have your picture? Bewildered, I looked up. My picture? Then I was stupid enough to ask, Why on earth would you want my picture for? She eyed me sweetly and with a smirk emerging on her face, he replied, because I collect disasters. I don't think the original line was hers, probably one picked up by her circle of school friends, all eager to go home and try it out on an older or younger brother. You know what was even more embarrassing? For a second I was flattered by the request that my youngest sister wanted to walk around with my picture in her purse or wallet perhaps showing off my face to her friends. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I fell for it line, hook, line and sinker. And she did it to me so often. I can imagine bumping into her best, her bumping into her best friend the next day with a triumphant, got him again, highlighting what an idiot I can be. Not too long after that embarrassing moment, she nailed me with another zinger that I didn't see coming. Well, when did you have that accident? What accident? I exclaimed annoyed. She had once more caught me unawares and distracted by whatever I was reading at the time. Her voice could be so annoyingly smug and condescending. Don't tell me you were born this way. Sucker. Blindsided once again by my little sister.